Zechariah didn't believe the news. And so the angel said, as a result of this, you will not be able to speak and you will not be able, as we'll find out later, to hear until all these promises have come to pass. I'll move over to this one. That sounds bad. There we go. All right, so whenever all this happens, Zechariah again doesn't believe. So we, we know it's been about nine months. And we come here and we see these promises beginning to be fulfilled. So if you would, read with me in Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. It says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives are called by this name. And they made signs to the father inquiring what he wanted them to be called, or what he wanted to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered, some of your translations might say marveled. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came upon all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit." And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is God's Word. Let's go before him and ask him to help us understand it this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for giving us your Word. Father, And we confess this morning as we come before it that we desperately need your Holy Spirit to apply it to our hearts, to help us understand. God, we give us ears to hear and eyes to see this morning. Would you strengthen our faith? Father, would those who have grown weary, would they be strengthened? Father, to those who have wandered, will you draw them back in? Father, to those who are not of your fold yet, will you bring them in? Father, do all this through the reading of your word this morning. We ask it and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So just to quickly summarize real quick. Uh, our sermon this morning is called A Salvation Better Than You Think. And we're going to look at three aspects of God's salvation for His people, Israel, but also what that means for the church. 
But just to quickly sort of set the scene for us, Luke brings us in in verses 57 through 66. And he tells us about this scene where... Uh, Elizabeth's pregnancy has come full term, right? Just as God promised through the angel some at least nine months ago at this point in the story, Elizabeth, a senior citizen, right? A a woman advanced in years, gives birth. She gives birth to a son just like the angel promised that she would. And then neighbors and relatives gather around and rejoice with her just like the angel said would happen. Right, And so after all of this, the neighbors and family gather around for the circumcision of the child, which to us probably seems like a really weird thing to have a party over. Right, Um, But the reason why this was such an important deal is because this was the covenant sign of being a part of God's people. Right. This was a sacramental service, sort of like our baptism. Right. That's the new covenant equivalent. People were gathering around celebrating the fact that this child was going to be a part of God's people. And so they gather around the child circumcised on the eighth day according to the law. And when all of this happens, it comes time to name the child. And just like any of you who have ever had children know, you get a lot of input from other people about what they think your child ought to be named, right? So people gather around, they start getting ready to help name the child. And it seems just kind of assumed that we're going to name the child Zachariah after his father, right? That seems like a reasonable thing to do. He's old. He wasn't ever supposed to have a child at this point. We want to honor him. And when they say, all right, we're going to name the child Zachariah, Elizabeth speaks up and says, no, his name is John. And you can kind of imagine, right, all the people standing around and they go, but you don't have anybody named John in your family. That makes no sense. Well, hang on, we'll we'll turn to Zachariah. Maybe he'll set this straight. So, you know... It says that they had to make signs to Zechariah, which tells us that he was probably deaf, not just mute at this point. And so I guess after a game of charades, right, they they convey to Zechariah what they want to know. And Zechariah requests a writing tablet, right? So they hand him whatever a first century iPad looks like, and he jots down, his name is John. Not we're thinking about naming him John. What do you guys think about this name? They say his name will be John. And it says that the people marveled. They wondered at this. Right? John was the talk of the town. Now, uh, quick, quick story. When I was graduating high school, uh, you know, it's a big deal when you graduate high school, right? And so my parents were going to throw me the customary graduation party, right? Celebrate the milestone. Graduating high school, get out of my house. Can I fit a pool table in his room? That kind of celebration, right? So my parents are getting ready to, to have this graduation party for me. And so they, they rented Goose Pond Park right there in town. Dad was grilling out burgers and everything. And I remember looking back, my parents probably had more friends at that thing than I did. Kind of strange, right? But I didn't think anything about it. So skip forward a few years and you get to our wedding planning, right? And we we hit that wall in wedding planning, Kaylee and I did, where we just wanted it to be over. You know, like engagement sounds like a good idea. Nobody wants a long engagement. You're just ready to get through it, okay? Uh, and so you, you start getting into these wedding details and we hit that point where we were like... How much is it to go get married at the courthouse? Can we just kind of do away with this? We didn't care if people had food. We didn't care if they had to stand for the ceremony. Like, we just wanted it over with. And at some point, I remember getting frustrated with my dad that they wouldn't just co-sign on this and cut some corners with us just to make life easier. And I remember him sitting me down, because all the best father-son talks begin with, Now, son? You know. 
And so he told me, he said, now listen, I know that this is technically your day, but a lot of our friends are going to be here to celebrate with us. And we're not cutting corners on this thing. So in other words, this day is your day, but it's not all about you, right? And I'll never forget that because then it started to click, right? That all of the birthday parties, the graduation party, the wedding, everything, they were actually celebrating a little, something a little bit bigger than me, right? Even though it was my party, it was my parents who had gotten me to those milestones, right? There was something bigger being celebrated. People were there to celebrate with my parents, it wasn't just me being celebrated, not just my accomplishments, it was their accomplishment. And loosely, in a very similar way, the birth of John was sort of like that, right? It was his party, technically, but the party really wasn't about him, right? Something else was at the center of the story. And even though, for me, right, it was my parents and people wanting to celebrate them, even John's parents weren't at the center of this celebration, Despite the miraculous accomplishment that it was that two senior citizens were having their first child, even the parents aren't at the center of the story. Something even bigger is being celebrated. Now, what do I mean by that, right? What in the world could take the spotlight off of two old people having their first child? And it's this, that God was up to something big, right? God through John's birth and ultimately through his ministry, was pointing to a salvation that is far better than anything Israel or we, for that matter, could have ever imagined. That's why John's birth was a big deal. It was his party, but something bigger was being celebrated. So three things we want to look at about this salvation today that God brought to the people of Israel and ultimately brought to us. We're going to look at, first, age-old promises fulfilled. We're going to talk about a people being freed to serve. And then lastly, we're going to talk about God's tender mercy being expressed. So first, age-old promises fulfilled. Look with me in verses 68 through 73. When Zechariah, immediately after naming John, right, says his tongue was loosed and he began prophesying. And when he prophesies, this is what he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and raised up a horn of salvation in the house of His servant David as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham. All of that to say, if you can just summarize it real briefly, is that this salvation that God was bringing to the nation of Israel was nothing new. This wasn't a new idea that God had in the first century. This was something that was promised from a long time ago, and it was the fulfillment of those promises. So if you're going through the Bible reading plan with us, or if you just read through Genesis, you remember around Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, uh, where God has called Abraham, right? A pagan. Called Abraham out of his land and says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to make your descendants more numerous than the stars, and I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And God seals that with a covenant. And by the end of Genesis, where do we find God's people? We find them enslaved in Egypt, right? Just like God had promised they would be back in Genesis 15. God's people are enslaved, being oppressed in the nation of Egypt. They needed saving. They needed rescuing. And you skip on through the Old Testament, and there's a familiar theme that emerges, right? Right? 
After they needed rescuing from Egypt, they ended up needing to be rescued from Assyria. And after Assyria, it was Babylon. And then you move into the New Testament, and they were being oppressed by another foreign nation. And it was Rome. See, God's people over and over again in the Old Testament seem to find themselves in need of saving, constantly being oppressed by a foreign nation. And the reason why, it's over and over again, the reason why they kept being enslaved and oppressed was their unbelief and their disobedience. Over and over again in the Old Testament, the people disobeyed. They didn't believe the promises of God. And they naturally fell prey to foreign nations. They were in constant need of being saved. And God promised that He would indeed do just that. Prophesying about the coming invasion of Assyria, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 11 of the book of Isaiah says this, He says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that's David's father, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. And that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time and recover the remnant that remains from his people, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, from the coastlands of the sea. See, Zechariah was a priest. He knew God's promises. And so when he's prophesying, it was probably with these words in mind, he remembered a prophecy about God raising up a Savior from the house of David. God was going to send somebody to redeem His people yet again. God was going to bring them out from under oppression, out from slavery. He was going to defeat their enemies. But something interesting about this prophecy. See, God had raised up people before. He had raised up King David, and King David died. He raised up judges in the Old Testament. He would raised up a lot of people to act as temporary saviors. But when Isaiah is prophesying, he says two things. He says that a, a shoot shall come forth from the stump of Jesse, right? A new branch. And that a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So get this. Isaiah is prophesying and saying, the Savior that's going to come and save God's people will both come from David, he'll come after David, and the Savior will come before David. This Savior was before David and He will come after David. The reason why Isaiah is saying this, because that seems like a paradox in our minds, but you guys are smart, right? You're already there. He's talking about Jesus. This Savior was not going to be just another man. Isaiah says, out of the household of David, God is going to raise up a true Savior for you. And it will be no less than God Himself coming to visit and redeem His people. Who could both be before David and after David? The great I Am, right? He comes and puts on flesh, 
Right? When it says that God has visited and redeemed His people, when Zechariah prophesies that, he's saying that God Himself was going to come and enter into human brokenness. Into our situation, our world, God Himself was going to come and visit and redeem His people. No less than God Himself. And the Savior was raising, as Zechariah puts it, a horn of salvation. This salvation that God was bringing is like raising a horn of salvation. Philip Ryken puts it this way, said the horn of an animal is like the business end of the animal, right? I was, uh, I was up in Fort Payne, Alabama, where Kaylee's parents are from, and my sister-in-law was playing in a softball tournament. And we're at this softball game, and, you know, we're, we're watching the game, enjoying the beautiful weather and everything, and out of nowhere, right, there's kind of a ruckus in the crowd, and I look around, and there is a baby goat, Walking around on a leash, wearing a diaper. This was somebody's pet goat they had brought to a softball game. And I'm really proud that I had to leave Chilton County to go and find that. Okay? There's a goat and a diaper at a softball game. And so my sister-in-law picks this goat up, and the owner says, Whoa, 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 be careful. Make sure you watch the head. Right? Because... Goat will knock you upside your, you know, your noggin there with his head, right? Even this pampered goat, you still have to watch out for the horns, right? The horn is the business end of the animal, right? Just like you don't stare down the barrel of a shotgun. When, when God says, I'm going to raise a horn of salvation for you, what he's saying is that I'm going to come and accomplish the salvation with power. I'm not going to come and halfway do this. I'm not here to meet you in the middle. I'm going to come and accomplish this salvation for you. Not in collaboration with your good works. I'm going to raise up a mighty horn of salvation. And I'm going to save my people just like I promised I would. So it's age-old promises fulfilled. The second thing we see about this salvation is a people freed to serve. A people freed to serve. Look with me at verses 74 and 75. He says that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. Alright, now it bears asking at this point, who exactly is Zechariah saying that God is going to save them from? Right, because a first century Jew, I believe, probably would have heard this prophecy from Zechariah and said, yeah, I co-sign on that. God's going to come and He's going to save us from the hand of Rome just like He saved us from Assyria and Babylon, just like He showed up and put the Egyptians down and led us out of Egypt. God's going to come and save us from our oppressors. And see, much like we do, Israel misunderstood its greatest need and misidentified its greatest enemy. Israel misunderstood its greatest need and misidentified its greatest enemy. So it's no wonder that when Jesus came, they expected Him to be a mighty king. Someone who had finally come to conquer Rome. But we said earlier that the reason Israel kept finding itself in this predicament was what? It was their unbelief and disobedience. See, the root of Israel's problem was not other nations. The root of Israel's problem was its own sin that kept bringing it back to the same predicament. By Israel's estimation, their greatest need was circumstantial. They needed God to come and fix a few things and tidy up their lives, and they could go on serving God just like they were supposed to. 
The problem with that logic is that we have an Old Testament full of proof that just fixing Israel's circumstances didn't actually fix the problem because they kept needing to be saved. Israel's greatest problem was not their circumstances, but their heart. Their greatest problem was their sin. And see, I'm afraid that here in the U.S., especially here in the South, much like Israel misunderstood its greatest need and misidentified its greatest enemy, I think that we do much of the same thing. We tend to think that our greatest problem here in the South, our greatest problem that needs to be fixed, is our marriage, our finances, our job situation, our health, the state of our country, behavior of our children, right? Whatever it is, we we look around and think, my greatest need is for God to fix my circumstances. My greatest need is for God to come in and fix all these things that are frustrating me, things that aren't going my way. And because of that, there's a false gospel that's peddled that sells Jesus as a personal assistant, someone who's coming to help you make all your dreams come true and live your best life now. We want God to come and meet our agenda, just like the Jews did when Jesus showed up. Good, you're coming and you're here to serve on our terms. But that's not the case. And listen, we may have very real problems and trials in this life. As a matter of fact, it's probably guaranteed. But our greatest problem and our greatest enemy is the sin in our own hearts. That's the greatest need you and I have. It's not circumstantial. The greatest need you and I have is the sin in our own hearts. Now listen, this is not to say that God will not miraculously work in different areas of your life. We believe that God loves restoring marriages. We believe that God loves breaking sinful spending habits that tank your finances. We believe that God wants you to have an enjoyable work situation most of the time. right? But the gospel doesn't begin there. The gospel doesn't begin by fixing the things that we think He ought to fix. The gospel begins by addressing our sin. The gospel always begins there. Like Israel, that's the enemy that we need God to come and save us from. Not our circumstances, but our sin. And this problem finds its roots in the very beginning. Since the garden, the problem was that every human being ever has been born with a natural bent towards that same unbelief and disobedience. God in Christ came to do for us what just trying to follow the rules could never accomplish. He came to change us from the inside out to make us holy and righteous. So what does God, through the prophecy of Zechariah, say the end goal of this rescue is? Look with me there uh, at the end of verse 74. It says that they might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of their life. See, the end goal was that God's people would be able to serve Him without fear. The end goal, when God comes and deals with our biggest problem and freeing us from our sin, is that God would free us from fear. Because of this salvation that God has given us, we no longer have to fear God's rejection. We don't fear death. We no longer have to fear punishment for our sins. And best of all, we don't have to pretend anymore that we have it all together. We don't have to fear being found out that we're actually not all we're cracked up to be. Matt Chandler, one of of my favorite sayings from him, is he said, God already outed you on the cross as being a fraud. It's the good news about the gospel is that you're not here to pretend anymore. 
In freeing us from sin, God frees us from fear. And when He frees us from fear, we are now truly free. Free to what? Free to joyfully serve Him from the heart. We can't serve God if we're constantly in fear. God comes to free us from fear so that we can serve Him wholeheartedly. So often we reduce Christianity to just something that happens to you when you die. Right? It's a way to get to heaven. And certainly the gospel is that, but it's more than that. A gospel that talks nothing about your present is only a half gospel. That's cultural Christianity, right? And frankly, that's why Christianity seems so dull to so many people. And keeping His promise to His people to save them, God was up to far more than we could have ever imagined. He was freeing us to serve Him radically selflessly, joyfully, from the heart, with no lingering fear or shame. And when that kind of Christianity is realized, it catches the eye of a watching world. When that kind of a Christianity is realized, it's not dull, it's not boring. It's life-giving, it's attractive. So how does God do this? Last point. God's tender mercy expressed. Look with me at verses 76 through 80. Zechariah says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. John's mission... His task was to pave the way for the Messiah who was going to come and bring this kind of salvation. John was born to give a knowledge of this salvation to God's people. He was the last prophet of the Old Covenant paving the way for the Savior of the New. In forgiving them, right? Sorry, that God in His tender mercy had come to set them free from their tyrannical master sin. So we just talked about. And He does it by defeating it on the cross. And it's the forgiveness of their sins. That's the key. That's how God sets His people free, is by forgiving their sins. In forgiving them, He would remove their shame, their guilt, and the fear that naturally just comes with us trying to work harder and do better. Living like that, enslaved to sin trying to hide the brokenness, hiding behind a smile, hiding behind a, I'm fine, how are you? Right? Living like that, aware of our brokenness and our sin and unwilling to own up to it before God or to anybody else, that's enslavement. And it's what Zechariah calls right here. That's what he calls living in the shadow of death, sitting in darkness. The good news, though, is that John was coming to pave the way for Jesus, the one who would bring light to the people trapped in darkness and to bring peace to a troubled, enslaved people by dying on a cross to forgive us of our sins. No longer do we have to hide it. No longer do we have to fake it because of the cross. And this is how God displays what what Scripture calls right here His tender mercy. 
This salvation springs forth out of the tender mercy of God. I wonder if we would describe God's mercy that way. Have we found God to be full of tender mercy, moved to compassion at the sight of His people, enslaved by their own sin and foolishness? Have we tasted the goodness of God like that? And I'll close here, but I think the greatest danger with a message like this is we're talking about the salvation that Jesus came to bring to us. Is that we sort of intellectually go, got it, check. And we move on. We never actually have this truth transform our hearts. Our knowledge never becomes our experience. That's a great danger in hearing this message over and over again and becoming callous to it. Is that we're never actually transformed. Listen, Zechariah knew the promises of God backwards and forwards. We said he was a priest, right? He knew, he knew all of the Old Testament. He could probably quote it. Yet, get this, there's a tremendous difference between the man that we meet at the beginning of the chapter who doubted the announcement of the angel and the man who then springs forth in praise and prophecy full of the Spirit at the end of the chapter. There's a difference in those two men. And the difference isn't knowledge. Zechariah knew the Word. The difference by the end of the chapter in Zechariah's reaction, his response, the difference was that his knowledge had become experience. God's Spirit had opened not only His mouth and His ears, but had opened His heart to see God's plan of salvation unfolding right in front of His eyes. Church, what you and I need more than anything this morning is we need God's Spirit to open our eyes, to take our knowledge and make it our experience. Have you ever tasted the mercy of God? Does it shape the way you view the world? Does it shape the way you view yourself? Let God come and open your eyes this morning. And it may be that before we leave this place, as Fred's leading that last song, that we need to plead with God that He would open up our eyes, that the Holy Spirit would make this our experience. And let's leave here rejoicing because God in His tender mercy, through Jesus, has freed us from the hands of our enemy just as He promised He would. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for raising up a mighty horn of salvation for Your people. Lord, we could have never done it on our own. Lord, our best efforts lead us nowhere. Father, our prayer this morning is that Your salvation would be experienced, that it would begin to shape our reality, that it wouldn't be something we just intellectually agree with and check the box and move on but that it would cause joy to well up and spring out of our hearts. Holy Spirit, we're asking You to do it because only You can. Lord, it's in Your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. We'll stand and sing together.
Thank you.